0: There's a lady named Kim Eggle. She's a popular blogger today. And in the past few weeks, I'm not exactly sure when it came out. It was just sent to me. But in the past few weeks, she posed an interesting question in one of her blogs. Now, I don't follow her. Somebody sent this to me. Take a look at this. Why would we have a desire that has grown from deep within if it weren't meant to transpire? Now let it soak in just one more time. Why would we have a desire that is grown from deep within if it weren't meant to transpire? Now Kim and her blog applies different applications of that question this way. She says maybe that's a desire for a specific person in your life. Maybe that's a desire to go to a certain place or a desire to develop a certain type of lifestyle. She goes on in in all of her different descriptions of it to say maybe that's a desire for a certain level of health that you are trying to attain in your life. All of it is applied in the light of this question. As she makes her way out of some of those serious things, she even moves into more casual types of desires in our lives. might be something like this. The desire to develop a new skill or to hone one that already exists could be a desire to bag a trophy buck or catch a bucket list fish. Those are my little plug-ins there. It could be any number of different things like that, all of which fit in a category that she refers to as a longing. Why would you have a longing in your life, a desire that has progressed so far that it has become a longing if it weren't meant to transpire? Now, take a look at how Kim Eggle describes or defines longing. It's a beautiful word. It's an intense word. Longing for something is an involved and in-depth experience. It has deep roots and days of emotional gusto. You know what a longing is. We've all had them. Maybe you're in the midst of one right now and you're wanting to realize that longing. It's a desire that has grown and taken root. As she makes her way through that recent blog, she answers her own question. Now, I don't disagree with the answers that she put forward, but I'm really not very interested in them. What intrigues me the most is her question. Look at it again. Why would we have a desire that has grown from deep within If it weren't meant to transpire, why would that be there if we weren't supposed to experience it? As I let her question rattle around in my mind, I did what preachers do. I started to wonder about some different passages of Scripture that could be measured in light of a question like this. My mind drifted to the Apostle Paul because he's a guy that understood a longing He's a guy that had a desire that had taken root in his life and defined everything that he ever did. His greatest desire was to preach. After he knew Jesus, after he came to know Jesus, that's all he wanted to do. He wanted to preach. He wanted to do it, and he was good at it. In Romans chapter 8, you could break down his favorite message just by the headings of your Bible. Listen to the deep desires of his heart just by looking at the headings in this chapter. Life in the Spirit, heirs with Christ, future glory, God's everlasting love. That was the message of this man's life from the moment he became a Christian until the Lord took him home. That's what Paul preached. Those were the messages that he wanted everybody to hear. Life in the Spirit, heirs with Christ, future glory, God's everlasting love. As much as that desire was there for him and realized regularly, he wanted nothing more than to share it with a very special group of people. A couple of different times in his writings, he would talk about the longing he had to preach in Rome. This is found in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Oh, Paul wanted to get to Rome, and he wanted to preach there. That desire took root in his life. It became a longing One of the greatest passions that he ever had was to get to Rome and preach, and to preach those four things that we just talked about. He wanted people, his people, to know Jesus the way he did. It was a deep desire. It was a deep longing. One that was realized, but in the most unique of ways. Because you see, Paul did actually get to go to Rome twice, but he never went as a preacher In both of those occasions, he went as a prisoner. He had a deep longing to get to Rome to preach, and God allowed him to. But it didn't look the way Paul thought it should. It didn't happen in an easy fashion or manner the way most of us would believe it would. With the longing that Paul had, the gift that he had for preaching, and the experience that he had with Jesus, it would make perfect sense if it had been smooth sailing all the way to Rome so that he could get there and realize this deep desire of his heart. But that's not how it played out. And that's why Kim Eggle's question is so penetrating in the life of the Apostle Paul. Terry, let's put that question up one more time. Why would we have a desire that has grown from deep within if it weren't meant to transpire? Now, we could add a whole second layer to that. If it weren't meant to transpire the way we think it should, why would we have that type of a deep longing if it was going to turn into a struggle? Well, when we get into Paul's story and to his life, we begin to find some of the answers for that. So let's just walk together to Rome with him, remembering that he didn't get to go as a preacher. He went as a prisoner. We're only going to look at the first account of that. We don't have enough time to go through both, so we're only going to look at the first account of it. So join me in the book of Acts. We are on our way to the book of Philippians, which we're in a series of messages from that short little book over the course of the coming weeks, but we have to spend time in the book of Acts in order to understand everything that Paul writes in Philippians. So join me in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, or I'm sorry, wrong spot. Acts chapter 21, and we are going to start in verse 28, or verse 8. I'm going to get everything working the right way here. Verse 27. Let's do that. (laughs) Chapter 21, verse 27. My daughter got married yesterday, so I'm a bit discombobulated. (laughs) Listen to this. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Paul's journey to Rome the first time began with the Jews believing that he had defiled the holy temple of God. Now, I want you to let that soak in for just a second. The Jews believed that Paul had defiled the holy temple of God. So that's where it all began. And they riled everybody up against him because how dare he do something as brazen as bringing Greeks, bringing Gentiles into God's house. Well, the Greeks had their own complaints against the Apostle Paul. And as silly as the ones were that the Jews had, the complaints and the accusations that the Greeks had against Paul are even more ridiculous. Check this one out. This is same chapter, verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of assassins out of the wilderness? So here's what they believed about the Apostle Paul, what the Greeks believed about him. That he was an Egyptian assassin who had led a revolt with 4,000 other assassins. So now you have the Jews upset with him, and you have the Greeks upset with him, and together they got the government upset with him, and the government arrested him. They locked him up in prison. In Caesarea by the sea, he was imprisoned in the lower level of Caesar's palace in Caesarea by the sea for two years. For two years. And during that time, he found himself a political as well as a religious lightning rod that was upsetting everybody. No matter what Paul did from the inside of the prison, he was upsetting everybody. Finally, near the end of those two years, because he was a Roman citizen, he used his citizenship to cause his deep desire to come about. He appealed to Caesar. That was his right. So he appealed to Caesar and requested an audience before him. At this point, that deep longing in his heart, that deep desire to go to Rome and to preach, well, he found a way to make it happen not as a preacher, as a prisoner. And so his journey to Rome began, and what a journey it was. We're still in the book of Acts. Let's go to chapter 27, verse 13. This is one of the most vivid accounts of everyday details that you can find in the Bible. Acts chapter 27, verse 13. Paul's deep desire to go to Rome and share the gospel, oh, it's going to happen. But God's got some rough spots along the way. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a a tempestuous, like I said, I'll get my word, my tongue working, wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. "'Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, "'we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. "'After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. "'Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, "'they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. "'Since we were violently storm-tossed, "'they began the next day to jettison the cargo, "'and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard "'with their own hands.' When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So now he's shipwrecked. Paul is shipwrecked. He's on his way to Rome to do what God had gifted him to do, to preach. And not only had God gifted him to do it, God had placed a longing in his heart to do it with this group of people. But it isn't going to be easy to get there. Now he's shipwrecked. And there's some really cool details that follow from that point on, but we just don't have enough time to get into them because I want you to see what takes place once they land on the island of Malta where he will spend three months on his way to Rome. Check this out, chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had began to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Dr. Luke is the one recording this. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. Now here's the way I picture this in my mind, and this is all it is. This is just my imagination. I see Paul Standing on the island of Malta, warming himself by the fire in the middle of this rainstorm, he's thinking, am I ever going to get to Rome? I cannot believe this is going on. Two years, I was in jail in Caesarea by the sea, and we get on this ship. I told him not to sail. The weather was bad. They wouldn't listen to me. They sailed anyway. We're shipwrecked. I had to swim to shore, and now here we are on this tiny little island. And this fire is the only thing that I have, and he's warming his hands just like this as a viper jumps out and grabs him by the hand, and in my mind, Paul With a, a snake hanging from his hand, just goes, Are you kidding me, God? You have got to be kidding me. And he shakes the snake off of his hand. And at that point, they all think he's a murderer that God is now dealing with him. That's the only explanation they could find. So not only was he accused of defiling the temple, not only was he accused of being an Egyptian assassin, now here he is on this tiny little island of Malta on his way to Rome to realize his great desire that had turned into a longing to preach the gospel. Now he's a murderer, and he has a snake hanging on his hand. And that after enduring a shipwreck. But God was still getting him there, not as a preacher, as a prisoner. So for three months, he stayed there and preached. And then they got on to Rome. That journey was full of its own challenges, but it was a good one. Listen to this. Verse 16 of chapter 28. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now he's preaching as a prisoner for two whole years. And not only is he a prisoner, he's paying his own expenses. The Roman government's not even paying for his keep. He's paying it all himself. But he's welcoming everybody that comes his way. Now, as you have that journey in mind, join me in Philippians chapter 1 and listen to how Paul describes this. Verse 12. That was Luke's record. Listen to how Paul describes it. Philippians 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That's how Paul sums up that entire experience. Everything that we just walked through, the imprisonment, the false accusations, the shipwreck, the viper, everything. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that it happened to me to advance the gospel. That's why. If I had to come here as a prisoner so that I could preach, so be it. I wanted to come as a preacher, but God had other plans. So be it. If that's the case, then I will still preach. Three dramatic things happened because of that journey. Three things that Paul helps us understand. Number one, he says that the gospel was preached throughout the whole imperial guard. Now, here's what you have to know. We already read from Luke's account that Paul was chained to a guard. They changed shifts every six hours. That means four times a day. And Paul tells us, or actually Luke tells us, that Paul remained in Rome where he preached freely with a guard chained to him for two years. Now if you just do the simple math and that's all I did here, here's what you will come up with. That means that Paul had 2920, here it is, 2920 different opportunities in those two years to preach to the Imperial Guard. Now we will have to assume that some of those 2920 different times he had the same guards, but still 2920 different unique times to preach to the imperial guard and he made a huge impact we don't know how many of those guards became believers but paul himself tells us that many of them did they became believers because paul was chained to them that's a preacher's dream you want a captive audience (laughs) chain yourself to me and for the next four hours i got a message for you you can know that some of them when they got off shift thought oh no I can't wait until I get to go back again. But some of them thought, all right, I can't wait till I get to go back again because Paul's bringing a message to me that will change my life. The imperial guard heard the message, and you know they shared it with other people. Christianity was shaped during those two years. All of culture's view of Christianity was shaped during those two years while Paul was in prison. Now, he would come back four years later under Nero's reign, and the shape of Christianity will have so changed that when Nero let Rome burn, he blamed the Christians for it. Paul died not long after Rome burned, martyred. But Christianity has remained. Christianity stands today, even after Rome burned, everything that happened and all the blame that was thrown onto Christianity, we stand here today as believers. And during that time that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, Christianity, the view of it by the world, was being shaped. It was being shaped because Paul preached. And he would tell us in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1 that the brothers were strengthened. All around the area, they were strengthened to preach what paul doesn't tell us but history does is that four books of our bible were written during that time during those two years that he was imprisoned paul never knew that those epistles would become a part of our bible but he faithfully wrote as god told him to write so when he tells us that what happened to him really happened to advance the gospel he wasn't kidding he wasn't kidding That deep longing within him that he never got to realize the way he thought he would advanced the gospel and made a massive difference. Knowing all of that sets the stage for a really interesting question that people have wrestled with since that time all the way up to today. Why do bad things happen to good people? If God put that longing in us, then why do bad things happen to good people? If the Lord gave the desire, then why doesn't it happen in the easiest fashion it could? Why do bad things happen to good people? You've probably asked that question yourself. And if you haven't asked it, you've had people in your circle that have. Why do bad things happen to good people? I want to caution you with questions like that. Be careful asking them because you may not want the answer. The Bible answers this question. Join me in Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10. If you're a Bible mapper, this is one of those things to write in the front cover of your Bible. Why do bad things happen to good people? Then just put Isaiah chapter 48, verses 10 and 11 in there. And that is a starting point for you in answering that question for other people and even for yourself. But again, my caution to you, be careful asking questions like this. You may not like the answer. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. God is saying this. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Two different times. God answers the question, why do bad things happen to good people? For my own sake. For my own sake. Because God has a plan. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because sometimes in order to realize your desires, you may have to go as a prisoner, not a preacher. Apply whatever you want. Because God has something much bigger that he wants to accomplish. When we ask that question, why do bad things happen to good people? We're really throwing our own hands up in the air saying, I just don't understand this and I'm not sure that my faith is solid enough to understand it. Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't want to trust God. I just want to complain to God. And that's really the underlying emotion behind that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? I'm complaining to God. And the Lord says, how should my name be profaned? That's what God says in Isaiah 48. So rather than blaming God, maybe what we should do is really set our mind on trying to get to the bottom of that question to find the answer. And in order to do that, all we have to do is tweak the question just a little bit. Rather than asking why do bad things happen to good people, we should ask the question this way, where is God when bad things are happening to good people? Where is God when bad things are happening to good people? And the answer is right here. He is on His throne, and He is in your heart. The Lord is with you. He has never left. Sometimes God is doing something much bigger than you can imagine or realize. But God is still God. Where is God when bad things are happening to good people? Right there with them. Paul understood that. That's why he could write the way he did in Philippians chapter 1. All of this has happened to advance the gospel. That means that Paul has the intricate ability to look past the moment and say the Lord is doing what the Lord is doing. I'm along for the ride and I will be faithfully along for that ride. That requires us to have a vision past our conversion. Here's what I mean by that. For a number of folks, we will will describe our relationship with Jesus this way. I became a Christian, was baptized when I was 10. Okay, that's when the relationship began. But that is never God's goal, to just get you to the beginning of the relationship, and that is enough. He is interested in the ongoing relationship, the refining, according to Isaiah chapter 48. And He's going to refine us. Trust me, He's going to refine us. As we go through our life with Him, those difficult moments are going to come. So ask the question differently. It's not, why is God doing this? That answer is because He loves you and has greater things in store for you. But that's only theological and philosophical. Get into the practical answer of it. Where is God when bad things are happening to good people? Right there with His people. That's where He is walking through it with you to bring about something wonderful, something wonderful. Paul knew that. Paul knew that. What God was doing in his life was using him, according to the original language, to pioneer advance the kingdom of God. Now, When I say that that's in the original language, I want you to see it so that you can understand it. It requires us to jump out of the English Standard Version of the Bible that I preach from into a different translation that uses a different word. So we're going to go to the New King James Version of the Bible. And Terry's going to put this up on the screen for you. This is verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, there's a word in the New King James Version that gives us insight into this. It is the word furtherance. There it is. In the original language, that word carries this meaning, to pioneer advance. That's what it means. It is a military term, talking about the engineers that would go ahead of the soldiers to open the path for them. To pioneer advance the military means you have to build bridges. You have to clear some trees. You have to build roads. Well, sometimes the Lord has to pioneer advance. He has to do some advance work through us to accomplish what He is really after and even what we're after. So that word furtherance, the Lord is using me for the furtherance of the gospel to pioneer advance the kingdom of God is one of the most encouraging words we can find in our relationship with the Lord. Lord, use me to pioneer advance. And Paul in Philippians chapter 1 in the verses that we just read will talk about some of the trees that had to come down even when he was in Rome. There were people that started preaching because Paul was preaching and they saw an opportunity for personal gain from it. Paul had to deal with that. It wasn't just the accusations from the Jews and the Greeks. It wasn't just the accusations of the people in Malta or the accusations of the Romans. It wasn't just the imprisonment. Now, outside of the prison walls, there were people attacking the ministry that Paul was doing so that they could gain financially from it. I want you to just imagine that. So that they could gain financially from it. And Paul could say... Even as those trees were coming down and the bridges were being built through the false messages that they were preaching, that the gospel was being advanced. God is still God. It's okay. It is okay. So Paul's talking about all of this in light of what God was doing through him. He was pioneer advancing the kingdom. And Paul got to be a part of it. Man, that's pretty cool. You don't just have to be a preacher that turns into a prisoner or a prisoner that gets the opportunity to preach in order to experience that. All you have to do is be a a Christian, a believer. If you're a believer in Jesus, He will use you to pioneer advance the kingdom. And sometimes it's going to be a challenge. But God is always God. So you hang on. You hang on. No matter what, you hang on. And then you get to look back and see what God did. Can you imagine what it was like for the Apostle Paul when he got to look back and realize all of those guards that got to hear the gospel? When he gets to look back from heaven and recognize that the letters that he wrote God is using some 2,000 years later to pioneer advance the gospel... When he gets to realize how Christianity, this new religion, was shaped through his imprisonment. Wow! You get the exact same experience when you get to look back and see what God has done through you. In the midst of it, it may just look like a shipwreck. But when you get through it and you can see the snake bites on your hand and the shackle marks on your wrist, but God did something it's worth it. It is worth it. So I want to give you three things to help you weather the storms and get to the point that you can look back. When bad things are happening, when struggles and challenges are all around you, these three things can help. Number one, see that as an opportunity to draw near to God and use His formula to do it. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now here's God's formula. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. God will draw near to you. So you submit, resist, draw, and then trust that God will draw near to you. Here they are again. You submit to God. You resist the devil. You draw near to God and you trust that he will draw near to you. In the midst of any difficulty or any challenge, that formula works. When you feel like you are under attack, bad things are happening to good people and you're the good people, four things. You submit. You say, Lord, I'm with you. You resist the devil. You rebuke him. You draw near to God, and you trust that God will draw near to you. And in the midst of all of that, you shelter in the Lord. You shelter in the Lord. We've heard throughout the course of the last 14, 15 months the term sheltering at home ad nauseum to the point that we don't want to hear it anymore. Well, let's just realize that nobody recently has come up with that idea of sheltering someplace or in somebody. God came up with that. This is found in Nahum. I know you were probably reading in Nahum this past week. It's a very popular book in the Old Testament. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. Matt Warner actually was reading in Nahum this past week. And in our staff meeting he reminded us of this great verse. Here it is, verse 7 verse of chapter 1. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. So realize that God is a stronghold. You shelter in Him. You take refuge in Him. And really, what that means is simply saying, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. No matter what, I trust you. And I'm with you. And then remember this no matter what, that you may very well be in a refining process for God's sake and even yours. And so you remember that the Lord is doing something in your life. Job did. Job chapter 13, verse 15 reads like this Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. You remember God is doing something. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him, but I'll argue my ways to his face. When you are sheltered with God, it is all right to talk to God about what's going on. Even to cry, hey, no fair. But don't let that ever compromise your walk with Him. Because if you do, listen, listen. If you do, you may never get the privilege of looking back to see what God has done through you. You remain faithful, don't you give up. Because hindsight with God is the best. It is the best We always want to believe that it is that foresight, where is God taking me, that's the best. No, that's just your hopes, dreams, desires, longings as they're coming to light within you. When you get to look back and see what God did through them, that's the best. It is the best. So don't you give up. Don't you give up. You stay with God all the way through so that you can look back and say, God used me to pioneer, advance the gospel. A couple of songwriters actually put together some words in a song that we sing here at Libby Christian Church fairly regularly that help us understand that. Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty wrote these words. Take a look. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. You stay the course because God's going to do something good and you want to be there. So don't you give up. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Paul did. And look what happened. You do the same. Why don't you stand and pray with us. Father in heaven, this isn't an easy subject because we always just want things to go our way. We want everything to be smooth and easy. We even believe in you that it should be. I don't know why we believe that, because you've always said, in this world we will have trouble. But you also reminded us to take heart. You've overcome the world. So, Lord, thank you for using us. Thank you for walking with us. And thank you for the beautiful power of hindsight so that we can look back and see what you have done. Father, help us in the furtherance, help use us in the furtherance of the gospel. We want to pioneer advance your kingdom. So Lord, we're faithful, we're available, we're yours. I know that for some people, that relationship hasn't started yet. I pray it will today.